Hi, and welcome to season three of the Ready for Polyamory podcast. My name is Laura Boyle, and I am your host. I'm so excited to be back for season three. Today, we have the very exciting opportunity to bring you an interview with Rachel Rose, who is from Hedonish.com. She is an amazing blogger and certified sex and relationship coach. She is a wonderful resource on a variety of issues relating to disability, sexuality, and polyamory. She's a polyamorous, invisibly disabled, neurodivergent, queer, bisexual woman who is here to talk to me about accessibility and disability and how they relate to polyamory. So I'm very excited to jump into this interview, which was a lot of fun to have. So before we get there, I want to do a quick shout out to our patrons from Patreon who are a big part of how I keep the podcast up and running. So thank you to the Green Wolf podcast, Timmy and Corwin, who uh, keep the boat floating as it were. If you would like to join us over there. There are all kinds of benefits to be had in terms of early releases of articles and podcasts. So come on over and join us at patreon.com slash ready for polyamory. If you particularly like this episode or a particular post on the blog and you'd like to throw a one-time coin in my hat, we have the Ko-Fi at ko-fi.com slash ready for polyamory. And of course... Uh, you can just visit us at readyforpolyamory.com to read various posts a couple of times a week, usually Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So I've been talking entirely too long. Let's get right into this interview with Rachel Rose. We are here with Rachel Rose uh, talking about disability, accessibility, and polyamory today. So your journey into sexuality education, sex and relationship coaching, and event planning, although I understand that all of the events are on hold because of the pandemic, uh, has been a little bit more circuitous than some. Can you share with us the sort of close notes of that, uh, of both your travels into education and into polyamory in general? Sure, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me here. Um, so those, So sex ed and polyamory sort of happened in a related way, but kind of separately. Mm -hmm. um, I went to school originally to be a graphic designer and I was doing that for many years as a freelancer. Um, and it wasn't quite as fulfilling as I was hoping. Um, it's so, so at one point um, I was working a few days a week in, in an office and, and then had um, as a freelancer and had some time to myself. And so I decided to start a blog, which is hedonish.com. And I was like, I love talking about sex ed. I'd wanted to figure out forever um, how to get my foot in the door with sex ed. And then with something without um, a traditional like trajectory for a career path, it's kind of like a DIY, your own career, I think for many people, uh, myself included. Um, and fast forward a few years after having this blog and starting to go into conferences where I learned that polyamory was a thing. And I uh, I remember I got home from my first conference, which is Woodhall Sexual Freedom Summit, I think in um, maybe 2016. Uh, and I was like, I said to my, at the time, monogamous partner of a decade, um, mm -hmm. oh my God, did you know people do this? Like, 
you know, I don't, I don't think it's for me or anything, but you know, I mean, like it's fascinating. Right. And then, and then slowly over time that became, um, but like, you know, what, what do you think about that? Like, what if, um, like, are you interested in that? Like, are you curious about it? Um, because I think it, you know, it's kind of took me a while to admit it to myself, I think, but as soon as I learned about polyamory, I was like, wow, it resonates with me so deeply. And it, mirrored a lot of the things that I had used other words to say that I wanted for, for quite a long time, um, wanting different types of connections with people and wanting, um, just to be able to like have that kind of independence and, um, being able to focus on like, you know, how I felt in when meeting people and like how I wanted to interact with them and engage with them and, um, kind of the sense of possibility that comes with that, I think. Um, but after that, so fast forward a couple of years past that time, um, that kind of led to the beginning of me opening up my uh, existing marriage to polyamory. Mm -hmm. And um, I also at that point had to stop working around the end of 2017 because my chronic illness became something um, that it wasn't really feasible for me to continue working in an office. And I decided that that gave me the opportunity um, to focus more heavily on on sex education. Um, So after that point, I... um, especially in navigating. So I have a a rare disease called indolent systemic mastocytosis, which literally nobody has ever heard of. Uh, It's a type of mast cell disease. Um, I don't expect anybody to remember that name, Uh, but um, it causes me to have some pretty severe fragrance and chemical sensitivities. So that is why I couldn't work in an office. And um, I apologize. This is kind of a rambly story because I have a ton of brain fog today. Thank you, chronic illness. Um, But anywho, over time, I realized that as I was looking for help with these various symptoms and comorbidities that were popping up, which is another word for like related diseases that, that come along with a, a health condition, um, that nobody was talking about how it, in, how it uh, related to sexuality and how you looked at yourself and, and, and how you experienced sex uh, or sexual pain disorders, all these different things I was experiencing. Um, and so I started talking about it because I wanted someone else. I, I know that there's other people who experience it and I wanted the next person who who went through what I was going through to be able to have a resource that they were able to find when they wanted, when they needed it. Um, and that's kind of grown over time. So it's gone into presenting and workshops, um, having the opportunity to great podcast recordings and also getting, uh, going through um, training to be certified as a sex and relationship coach so that I could help more people one-on-one or as couples or polycules. Um, and it's been really wonderful. Yeah, there's definitely a pretty big gap in the conversations around uh, chronic illness and rare diseases, especially around how that affects relationships and sexuality. I find at least when people are talking about it, because it's almost like people don't want to talk about illness and sexuality at the same time, which I've found to be really bizarre because a lot of us who have various chronic illnesses are pretty young and are still definitely in relationships, right? We're not like suddenly out of the relationships we were in when we got diagnosed, Mm -hmm. right? And so when people like pretend that those relationships aren't there or that we're not having uh, sexual side effects from either the treatments or the diseases themselves, it's kind of a shame. Uh, so it's been nice to have things like uh, your teaching or your blog or things like that out there uh, as resources. 
I appreciate that. And yeah, I think there's a, luckily I, I am, I'm happy to see that there's been more and more people talking about it since I initially kind of, um, realized that there wasn't what I needed out there. Mm-hmm. And so I love, and I love seeing such a, because even if there's a handful of people doing it, there's always room for more because all of our experiences are, while there's a lot of overlap, they're all very different. And so I think that that, you know, whatever comes out of the woodwork and speaks to that just shows that we are all like, we can all be sexual beings and being chronically ill or disabled. I mean, there's plenty of people who, um, for me, my chronic illness is genetic. I mean, I have several conditions, but the uh, mastitosis is genetic, but it wasn't something that was symptomatic for me until my early twenties. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people who are born disabled or, or chronically ill, and that doesn't make them any less sexual or right. like all humans um, than, than anybody else. Um, just like people who have acquired things or whose symptoms have gotten way more significant or life impacting over time people who want to have sex are going to want to have sex. And that's not for everybody. There are plenty of people out there who just aren't interested, but it shouldn't be assumed that you are going to be disinterested in sex based on your health conditions. It's right. not accurate. And it's, um, can be very infantilizing for a lot of people and very dismissive of people's concerns. I've had, um, plenty of doctors tell me like, um, I remember it's actually a doctor. I had a great, I have a great relationship even, even still, but I was on a medication for nerve pain years ago that caused me to not be able to have orgasms. And I, you know, after, and it had some other side effects that weren't great either. Um, I could not stay awake, but, um, but the orgasms were kind of like the, 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 um, the final nail in the coffin for me with that one. Yeah, and um, point. <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, 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 I really like orgasms. We need to bring those back. Um, <laughs> and the doctor said to me, she goes, well, what, you know, like you'll be in more pain. And I was like, yeah, but that's, that's my choice. Like I would rather have this because for me, this is my priority, you know? And, and I hear what you're saying. I hear that maybe for you, it wouldn't be, and that's totally okay. But like, we need to respect what I want for my body and this isn't it. Um, and I think it's a, that's often a really hard thing for people to advocate for in those moments. And it shouldn't be an issue in the first place, but unfortunately it is. To do, to help me with this same problem. And they were like, oh, we hadn't realized that that might affect you in, uh, ways that had anything to do with, uh, like anything to do with sexual function with any of these medications that we're giving you. And I'm like, well, you've given me four different medications that have overlapping interactions. You didn't think that they might combine to have side effects. And I think you, um, you really, you really hit the nail on the head there, like without even maybe realizing it is that um, these, these, the women, the doctors that you're talking about or nurses um, who felt like they weren't being taken seriously didn't even recognize that you as somebody who, you know, like assigned female at birth might also not be taken seriously having your concerns. Um, and I feel like, and listen, there's, there's people of all genders who are chronically ill. And I do also tend to find, um, you know, that people who are assigned female at birth is, tend to be especially prone to having um, a variety of health conditions, especially that seem to pop up in your early twenties mm-hmm. through like forties. And it's such a group that is so often takes longer to get diagnoses and is often dismissed. I have, um, there was a point in time where I would either have to bring my mother or my, or my um, cis male husband mm-hmm. uh, with me in order to get taken seriously. And even then sometimes they were dismissive. Um, and it was ridiculous to feel like I had to bring a man around with me in order to, for someone to hear what I was saying. Yeah. And like, I know I'm digressing a little here with 
uh, some of these points, but um, to kind of get back in the direction that I was um, trying to, to be in originally, um, now that we've gone off on a tangent a little bit, um, we have ADHD. My entire brain is tangent. So go for it. Same. So <laughs> it's not, it's not an easy, an easy world to go in a straight line in. Um, one of the big changes along the way was that chronic illness flares changed the shape of your life and made it kind of impossible to work full time while doing your education work. I had a similar shift a couple of years ago that led to a year of uncertainty about direction while I gave some local classes, and then I went all in about the blog and podcast. For me, that's led to a lot of insecurity around whether I'm actually doing enough work, contributing enough. Has this also been a concern for you? Do you have any advice for working through days when the brain weasels? Are Today is one of those loud brain weasel days because I woke up and I don't feel well and my brain fog is, is um, it's, it's just, I feel useless today. I'll be like 100% honest. I'm like super, I, I feeling being vulnerable on these things always feels super awkward. And also I think it's really important to like role model what that looks like because I know it's really helpful when I see other people doing it. So I'm gonna do my best. But I woke up today and I'm like, I can barely function. Like, get showering getting dressed felt like a whole freaking marathon and um and so when I sat down to do work I'm like oh my god I can't even function today like I ended up doing other things or just trying and and it's rough um not every day is a good day a lot of them aren't and it makes me feel like uh, I'm never going to be able to keep up with these other more able-bodied people who just like produce like work constantly and are constantly just like killing it they're like doing awesome. And they're quoted everywhere and they're on every podcast and they're doing all the things and, um, and not to put them down. Like they're awesome. They're working their asses off. I think it's incredible. And also it's hard to feel like I'm ever going to be able to keep up as somebody whose brain isn't always reliable and whose body isn't either. Um, I actually hired a business coach about two months ago because I, I just feel like sometimes I don't know what I'm doing and I really need to figure out how to make this business work in a way that's sustainable for me because it's unrealistic to pretend like I'm not going to continue being chronically ill. I'm not going to be able to have a business that looks like anybody else's probably because the way that my brain and body work isn't like many other people's. Um, and there are, there's some positive aspects of that. I think I'm a pretty quirky, unique individual and I love that stuff. And also like the chronic illness stuff is really like not my favorite thing. Um, and they all impact how I'm able to function. Um, and you know, ADHD as well. Uh, I know that that impact, like, uh, I feel like my chronic illnesses like make ADHD more significant in a way that it never was prior to having health issues. It was way more manageable before. And I think that often when I do on those, uh, the brain weasel days is like, try to remember something my business coach said to me. I think it's been really helpful in having somebody who, uh, I, who like in my brain has a sense of a authority over like how I'm supposed to be running a business and then how encouraging she also is about navigating, like being able to take care, like how much I need to take care of myself because I can't do anything if I don't do that. I can't help other people or myself if I don't prioritize my health and what I need first. Um, I also have some really incredible friends who, who also work in sex ed. And, and, and honestly, I, I think half of my friends at this point are therapists um, or have some kind of social work background. I don't know how that happened. Um, but they're all lovely and like so good at reinforcing what I think I, I, what I know to be true and what I would tell all of my friends in the same situation. 
and also what I find it really hard to believe when I tell myself. Um, because like, we're all such assholes to ourselves, really. Like we are, we would never treat anybody else most of the time the way that we all treat ourselves. Uh, I think especially for those who have chronic health issues. And so um, I hear what you're saying because I feel the same way so much of the time. And also like, I try to um, be really kind to myself and think about what I would tell somebody else in the same situation. Um, and when that doesn't work, um, I keep a, sounds silly, I keep a like happy folder, quote unquote, of screenshots and other things that people have sent me about my work or comments people have made. Um, because sometimes when I feel like I am just like fucking up everything, it's really helpful to have that kind of positive reinforcement and being like, holy shit. So like, cool. I didn't get anything done for a week and a half because I didn't feel good. And I like miss, you know, especially if I've missed deadlines or something that I feel anxious about, which is a, honestly like most things. Um, so relatable. <laughs> but it's really helpful to, to be able to go back and be like, oh my God, I like this person told me I like changed their life. Like, I don't know. I don't know them. I don't know anything else about them, but it mattered to like what I'm able to produce mattered to somebody. Um, a couple of years ago, someone came up to me at a conference. They've, they've become a friend since then, but I talk a lot about my chronic illness. And uh, as I mentioned, it's really rare and hard to, it can be hard to diagnose in a lot of ways. And through a network of friends and polycules, this person who lives across the country from me um, knew somebody I knew and they got pointed to my website. And through that and reading about what I wrote about my health conditions, was able to get a diagnosis because they knew what to ask their doctor to look into. And they came to me at a conference and them and their wife told me that I changed their lives. And like, I think about that a lot because there are so many days where I feel like I'm not doing anything useful. And I'm frustrated with the fact that I have all these ideas because, you know, I have ADHD. I have like a thousand ideas at any given time. I mm -hmm. can't execute any of them most of the time, but you know, they're there. Um, and there's all these things that I want to do. I'm like very energetic and very motivated. And then my body doesn't help, like allow me to do it sometimes. And that sucks. It also like the shit I am able to do, like it matters. Like I'm, I'm, you're not just screaming into a void, you know? I'm sorry to laugh, but it's like so relatable. No, it's I just, no, you're not laughing. I don't think you're laughing in like, no, a, it's just, that's anyway. where the energy has to go because what am I going to do with it? But it just, so you were saying earlier that 2017, you ended up having to stop working and ended up sort of redirecting where sort of the path of what you were doing and I it was December the end of December 2017 is when my epilepsy got bad enough that I had to admit that I couldn't hold an office job 40 hours a week anymore because my epilepsy is nocturnal and I just wasn't sleeping enough hours a night anymore even through the meds to keep holding a job mm -hmm. like I couldn't drive anymore and I couldn't work 40 hours a week. So I ended up staying home partly to take care of the kids and partly to do what work I could at home. So I was doing um, some uh, part-time work for a therapist acquaintance, like doing um, filing uh what like are they admin. called within like admin work with insurance companies for them uh, for some time that year. And then by the and doing some local lectures about kink and 
polyamory with sort of the local community. And then I ended up starting the blog. And in 2020, I was like, oh, I guess since I'm home all the time, maybe I'll start a podcast. (laughs) I'll be every white dude and start a podcast. Uh, And over 2019, my doctors were like, oh, here's a curveball. We're going to have to cut into your head this year. (laughs) Oh, but there's a pandemic, so we're going to have to wait an extra six months to do it. That sounds rough, especially knowing and the need to wait. That's a, it's a recipe for anxiety, in my opinion. So it was a very interesting year. Um, and I spent the whole year going, well, is a podcast really enough that I'm doing this year? Like, is a blog and a podcast while I wait for surgery enough that I'm doing this year? I'm not, I'm not writing for anyone else. I'm not teaching enough classes elsewhere. Oh, so I really like your suggestions of sort of talking to myself like I'm other people instead of talking to myself like I'm me, because talking to myself like I'm me clearly doesn't work, (laughs) right? It's, it's tough too. Cause when you're working online, when you're like, you're primarily working to the internet and, and obviously everybody for the last year or so has been mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, but even prior to that, like you don't honestly know who it's reaching. You can see your analytics and it's some amount of people, but you don't know how, like if it's impactful and it, it really does feel like screaming into a void in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, I think like listeners, if you appreciate this podcast, make sure you, uh, make sure you tell your, your lovely host. Um, and so, um, because that that stuff matters, it's nice to hear that kind of stuff. It helps us as creators be people who feel like we're doing it for a reason. Yeah. It is nice when you guys, you know, give me feedback, you can always reach me at my email ready for polyamory at gmail.com is the easiest way to reach me. You can reach me through the contact form on the website. You could reach me at the Patreon. That's always fun. (laughs) Uh, Here at our podcast, we had been uh, talking last season for a while about um, sort of the interpersonal effects on polycules of COVID-19. Have you seen any big interpersonal changes during the pandemic? Or have you been more kind of generally affected like most of us in terms of just well, there's a stay-at-home order, so I'm kind of stuck here for several months at a time. Um, I think a little bit of both. So uh, my polycule has changed quite a bit since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I had a breakup last year um, that that changed because, like, you know, every person comes with their own people, and that makes the bubble quite a bit bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, I have uh, an incredible roommate who, for totally amicable reasons, had moved out. He got a promotion and um, came with an apartment. Um, and so that that cut out a few more people. Um, I, I met an, an incredible woman the week before the pandemic started, and we've been dating for about a year, for a little over a year now. And so, in those different changes, has changed how my my personal polycule has has been impacted. Um, but I think it's very similar for most people that I that I've spoken to, which is that you know it's a lot harder to date. I think um, with polyamory, one of the it's like a I think for a lot of people, and I definitely don't think it applies to everybody, but that dating is like a fun novelty, getting to meet new people, 
Mm-hmm. I say this as like an extremely extroverted person. So I know that there are a lot of introverts out there who probably um, <laughs> don't think it's as fun as I do. Um, but uh, I know that like, that's something I haven't really been interested in, nor has many other, have many other people because uh, there's just like an abundance of safety concerns to navigate, especially when yeah. you also have chronic health issues. Um, I have definitely been, um, I have definitely been one of the more locked down people. I, I am fully vaccinated now. It's one of the very few perks of being super chronically ill uh, is that you are kind of, depending on where you lived, at least where I live, um, I was able to get it sooner than most people, but I know that's different based, like depending on what county or township or state you live in. Um, and uh, yeah, and I I'm think in an age-based state. I get to get my shot this weekend. It's very well, exciting. I'm so glad you get to get it. And it's so awful that, um, it's just so variable based on where you live. It's just, it blows my mind. Uh, I have lots of other unrelated thoughts to, to add in there. But um, <laughs> but I think that like, there were a lot of, there's a lot more, for some people, there was more tension in their polycules based on what everybody deemed to be safe. Cause if that didn't line up, it could be really challenging to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of, I think that folks who are in polyamorous communities who are already more comfortable having safer sex practices, um, conversations, excuse me. Um, and, and being able to navigate difficult conversations in those ways, we're kind of uh, better prepared than I would say mainstream society for having safety conversations around COVID. But also um, that doesn't necessarily mean that people's view of what is safe and what isn't is aligned. Um, yeah, we at least had practice having the talks, whether or not we were prepared to have opinions that lined up well enough that the talks weren't terrible. Yeah, I, I kind of think I, I see it a lot like um, I see co- navigating COVID to be weirdly, and this is going to sound weird, but I swear it makes sense, a lot like sex. So whoever is the, um, you take things with sex, you take things at the speed of whoever is the le- least comfortable person, mm-hmm. right? Like, so if they're, if someone's not ready to have sex, you wait, you discuss it. Um, if someone's only comfortable with certain things, that's what you do, because that even if one party is more comfortable than the other person, like you just go with whatever, um, both people are totally uh, enthusiastically consenting to. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with COVID. You know, you've got to go at the speed of whoever is the most vulnerable or least comfortable. So if you've got mm-hmm. someone in your group, in your bubble, pod, polycule, whatever you want to call it, um, mm-hmm. who's immunocompromised or who has, uh, who perhaps is pregnant or who has something else that might put them at a higher risk, um, you do things at the speed of that person and what they feel safe doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's how my polycule navigated it. And that felt really good to me personally. Um, but I know that, you know, for some people it caused more issues because they did not everybody saw eye to eye on, on what, what was necessary. Yeah. And how did the pandemic affect the parts of your work that weren't event planning? How did you, uh, did you think there were benefits to any of the changes either professionally or personally that happened to accommodate people's COVID precautions in terms of accessibility that we should consider keeping or at least not whining about having as options in a post-pandemic world. Totally. Um, So it affected my work in a lot of ways, like I think everybody else's. Um, Even one, uh, so obviously event planning, like I I was hosting uh, monthly events that are no longer happening. um, And I, uh, at some point would love to bring them back, but when it's safe. Um, And I also um, had a, a long, a month-long trip planned um, where I was going to be presenting at multiple conferences last, it was supposed to be the, um, the last weekend in March last year through, I was going to get back like mid-April. Um, and obviously that was canceled. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was like, and then I had a few other events lined up for the year to speak at and it just immediately everything fell through. So I was like, 
well, there goes all of 2020. I just spent like five or six months setting all this up and all of a sudden it was all gone in like two weeks. Um, so kind of took some time to myself to like figure out what, what I was doing. I made for a while, I just like got really into sewing and made masks for like everybody I could find who would mm -hmm. wanted one um, and just like gave them away or let people pay what they wanted. Um, and um, when my neck got too sore from trying to sew so many things, um, <laughs> I moved on and got back to work. And um, that's when I decided to do uh, go through my certification as a sex and relationship coach. Mm -hmm. So that really, um, I think helped. Um, it was something I planned on doing anyway, and just probably wasn't going to get to until 2021. Um, so mm -hmm. that just kind of moved it up, but there were so many things about that, that made it more accessible for a lot of people, myself included, um, as somebody with fragrance and chemical sens sensitivities. Um, I do love in-person events, even when they're really challenging to navigate, because as I said, I'm super extroverted and I get to see all these people that I love and, and don't see very often. Um, but being able to do things online or at least have the option to do it online is something I've been trying to tell people we should be doing for quite a while because not everybody has the financial resources, the ability, um, the time to go travel to these things and sex ed is important for everybody. So these, these, the things that are getting taught at conferences should absolutely be available to those who aren't able to physically get there. Um, also doing things online, which is something that I think in a lot of ways people are getting burnt out of with a little bit, but only because it's the only potential option and not what, um, you know, people are maybe looking for at this point. Um, it also does offer other types of, access of accessibility like closed captioning um, or even um, I, I believe Zoom now has automatic closed captioning available in a lot, um, at least maybe on certain payment plans. I'm not sure if it's all of them. Um, but that can be great for people who are hard of hearing or who have like auditory processing disorders or any other variety of conditions. And I absolutely hope that we keep all that stuff. Um, there is a lot of things I'd love to attend that like if I don't feel well enough, I would love to be able to um, hop in online when I'm able to or watch yeah. it later. It's also just great for when people aren't running events in an accessible enough venue or like when traveling isn't just an option for someone. Like, I know that I have friends who just making the trip is too onerous some of the time. And expensive. It's not financially accessible regardless of whether or not you have health conditions for a lot yeah. of people, especially in the communities that tend to want to go to those events. Um, mm -hmm. We tend to be a lot of LGBTQ plus folks and a lot of disabled and chronically ill folks. and. Um, mm -hmm a lot of other marginalized groups that don't have, that typically and statistically don't make as much money. Yep. And so like all of that, I think makes having an online option running simultaneously a really good option. And it really isn't that hard to like run a camera in the back or the middle of a room that's webcasting mm -hmm. particularly hard, right? And have, okay, uh, all you need to do is get the web ticket to the event, which will be either a lower price or the price of being at the event, but not of traveling as well. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it would make a it a lot more accessible for people. Absolutely. And I've spoken to, I have some friends who are some, um, I'm friendly with some of the people who host some of the larger sex mm -hmm. ed events. And, um, you know, I've had some folks tell me that like, while when they host in-person events, they were barely making even, and that was with, you know, um, grants and other funding. Um, but when they did it online, um, they actually were able to make a profit. 
you know, so in some ways it's better for the event host as well. Um, not to mention, um, I feel like we have a lot more, there's a lot more tools at your disposal now and a lot more services that seem to be available than there were a year, year and a half ago, because it's been necessary. A platform, like a web platform costs a lot less than a hotel. I'm not sure what the cost is, but I assume it's probably. Oh, it's substantially less. Like running a web platform with two lectures running simultaneously is, you know, a thousand bucks. It's not assuming that you're running a professional account that can run two things simultaneously, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like renting a hotel is so, so much less. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, as somebody who really enjoys going to the in-person events, I, I'm looking forward to when they're able to safely return, but I would really love if there was still an option for people to, um, to have an online version. And I also don't think that that should be a substitute for having in-person accessibility as well. Right. Like they can both simultaneously exist. It's like, I I would, I would hate to see, um, having an online version or like a, like a watch it online, um, option to be something that replaces any, um, attempts at accessibility in person. Right. I I wouldn't want it to be the only thing, but having it as a both and would be very nice. I could totally see it becoming something where at certain events. So like, um, when I go to events or when I'm speaking at them, as I said, I have a severe fragrance and chemical sensitivity. Um, it causes me to go and if I, if someone walks by me with perfume on, I will go in anaphylaxis. Um, luckily I've never been anaphylactic shock. Um, but some people who have the condition or other mast cell diseases, um, mass activation syndrome, also known as MCAS is a much more common version, um, that more people are familiar with, but people with those conditions, um, often go into anaphylactic shock or can be even more severe than my reactions. And they're pretty, mine are pretty terrible uh, and hard to manage. But I usually have to reach out and ask them if they're, um, people don't generally like when I tell them they need to have an accessibility policy around fragrances. So what I find is a lot more helpful is if I volunteer my time to help them craft it, um, which is exhausting and a lot of time consuming energy on my part, but it's really important and um, benefits me and I know a lot of other people. And um, I would just hate to like people to, to not want to do that anymore because I could just watch it online or something. And yeah. hopefully no one would do that. And I don't think in our sex positive community that that would be an issue, but I could see it being a thing at, at larger events or ones that are less uh, inclusive to begin with. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that, that like, if it's something that they didn't want to do in the first place, they'd go, well, we're like that we've crafted this, you don't have to do that. <laughs> Yeah. Or like, I know that a lot of, you know, for, for valid, for, I mean, so like, or like, um, uh, sign language translators can be very pricey. I would hate to see, um, events that offer that as an option for those who need it to take that away because they could just watch the live captioning. Cause it's not mm-hmm. the same for a lot of people. I mean, I'm not, um, super well-versed in that community mm-hmm. and, and that accessibility need, but I do know that that is different and not, doesn't offer the same amount of accessibility for folks. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So for your in-person events, the events you run with uh, Glittergasm, which I think were monthly, right? They you were. have um, like metrics or sort of community statistics that you're like waiting on before you begin running those? Or is it a like vague, we're going to see how things are going and then start running our events again? So so the event company that I, I co-own, I have a business partner. Um, but um, 
they have largely in a lot of ways stepped back because they were they were going through grad school. Um, so it is a, called Glittergasm events. We have two events, Glittergasm and Rainbowgasm. Um, they are play parties, um, which is another word for sex parties for the LGBTQ community. Uh, Glittergasm um, catered to um, cis and trans women and non-binary folks. And then uh, Rainbowgasm is for the whole LGBTQ community. So Glittergasm didn't have any men while Rainbowgasm uh, allows men to attend. Um, so given that they are environments in which people would be very uh, in close contact, close contact yeah. um, it is probably going to be something that comes back far after we allow people to attend like mm-hmm. concerts and other things, because I don't want, I, I love my community and I absolutely don't want to put any of them at risk. Um, also the venues that have were, were available prior, prior to COVID um, have largely all been closed. Um, right. We did previously have some it's not easy to find a place to host this kind of event. So um, I have hosted them at my own home. Um, And honestly, if if I'm being super blunt, I think it would probably take me a while to, even as like an exceptionally extroverted person to feel comfortable having that many people in my home again. Um, You know, so I I think it's going to be a while as as sad as I am to say that. I'm not sure that there's any exact metrics. I tend to be a very follow the science kind of person. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, uh, and I I would love to avoid um, ever putting a mandate in place that people have to be vaccinated to attend because I think that that can be really ableist in a lot of ways. I know that I'm somebody who I, while I have been vaccinated for COVID, I have have also, it was, it was a really tough decision because I had a bad reaction to a flu vaccine a few years ago that led to a huge flare up for me. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's a lot of reasons that, um, that people are unable to get vaccinated even if they want to. And I wouldn't want to put that on people that they were not not able to be a part of a community because of those limitations. That makes um, sense. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure what it would take. I love, that's such a good question when you asked, when you um, had like thrown it out there that that was something you might want to talk about. I was like, wow, I hadn't even thought about that. Um, I well, think- Because I didn't know if you were basing it on like community spread wasn't happening for X months or like a percentage of adults in the area had been vaccinated and so many months had passed or if it was something that you were going to like- wait another year and then see how you felt or what I suspect other sex positive and kink events will probably return before glittergasm just because um I I would like to see how those things play out with people who might have more um as I said it's me and then uh, a business partner who's only able to participate somewhat uh depending on their their schedule um so I'd love to see how how bigger events who um, might have more resources to make sure things are safe, how they're handling it, and then be able to hopefully model what I feel is safe. Um, Honestly, I've been so surprised in my area, like munches and things are already restarting in person. And it like, frankly, kind of freaks me out because only like 20 something percent of local adults are vaccinated. And I'm like, like 13% this seems so soon. Like, I know we're doing pretty well and that older adults are getting vaccinated first. And like a bunch of our local scene is on the older side. So maybe that's who's showing up, but I don't know. Right. Uh, and, and listen, I, I personally deeply miss all of those events. I love going to them. They are part of my oh. social life. And like, as a person, I really enjoy it. And also- yeah, no, I'm not there yet. I'm an um, extrovert who misses it so much, but I'm <laughs> like, like I want to, as, as I said a couple of times last season, I cannot wait to be hanging around with a bunch of people with 
a soda with a twist of lime that no one can tell isn't vodka laden but like (laughs) I can't (laughs) you know and I also I mean I just I think uh, a lot of my views have been shaped by being somebody who for reasons outside their control will live with chronic health conditions for the rest of my life probably ones that will continue to develop I mean like I feel like there was a uh, for like most of my 20s I'm in my early early 30s now. Um, For most of my 20s, I got like a new diagnosis every year and they just sometimes pile up. Like I just get a whole bunch of new, either symptoms or conditions or something else. Um, Every so often, my body is uh, wildly inconsistent. Uh, It's consistent in its inconsistency. But the fact of the matter is, is that I know what it it feels like to live with something where um, it's going to be a challenge to navigate for the rest of my life. And it sounds like you know as well. And I think that... um, that really made me want to be extra cautious around COVID because especially with such a, um, a large portion of the population developing long-term symptoms um, or, or harm from having COVID. I, I, listen, I have, I have hit my quota. I like my maximum. I don't have any more brain capacity to handle more medical health issues. Um, I can barely handle the ones I have. And uh, boy, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid making sure myself and all the people I care about don't get them, you know, Yeah, I don't want to set anybody else up for having their own slew of things to deal with and do. And it's too much. So it makes me feel (laughs) a little bit anxious to see things already starting up. Um, So I would, as much as I want us all to be back to socializing because I am extroverted and want my people, I also... I'm not sure that we're all ready for our people. Um, right, right. So. And I think that there's smaller, safer ways to socialize in the meantime. I mean, um, even last year, I, I got a couple of friends together um, who we all sat down and discussed like everybody's risk factors and who they'd seen and, and what those risks were. And we all got COVID testing and then we went camping. We yeah. didn't share tents. We were at different campsites, but we were able to like social distance space out around the fire and hang out together. And, you know, that was really awesome. Um, I think with one of the stimulus uh, checks, I, I bought a, an outdoor projector. I, I'm fortunate to have a nice yard. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was able to get a, like an outdoor projector and a couple speakers and we spaced them out across the yard and had, you know, movie nights or whatever. Like I definitely need my social needs met. Um, otherwise I, I get a little, I get extremely stir crazy, but I'm not ready to do it in a way that wouldn't would put anybody in danger. Right. Um, so uh, the last question that I had sort of, pre-written down here for you was are there ways that the polyamorous community does either especially well or sort of especially fails to serve disabled people in your opinion I think something that really um so when I started teaching sex ed um so I'm I'm queer bisexual um I use those terms often interchangeably for myself um and um polyamorous but I wasn't identifying that way, uh, any of those ways, um, when I started teaching sex ed. It's something that um, I knew I wasn't straight, but didn't think I qualified as being bi because I'd only ever had one relationship and that happened to have been with a man. Um, we just had been together for a really long time. And so, um, you know, when I started exploring that community, it was at a point in my life where people um, at my job, at in other areas of my life were really horrible about accommodating my allergies. These 
I, I used to be able to wear perfume and now if it goes anywhere near me, I can't breathe. Um, and so it's, or I have some other terrible uh, symptom, but, um, and it was just getting to the point where I had been chased out of two jobs because of it. And I've had people who I thought were friends yell at me when I asked them to not wear fragrances while we were going to be working in close contact. I had somebody at like a job I'd had for many years um, where we had to build a, a thing together um, and we were just going to be standing in close contact for a few days. And I said, hey, for those like three days, could you just not wear your perfume? I'm, I'm, it's, it's making it hard for me to breathe. And she lost it on me. She started yelling at me. Um, just a really terrible response. And, and, and that's only happened, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 times, but they stick with you. Like it that sticks with me far more than the times that people have been kind about it. And um, because personally, I also hate being yelled at. And when I started becoming more a part of the disabled, of the, I'm sorry, the polyamorous and LGBTQ plus communities, people stopped acting like that. Like nobody in those communities ever did that. They were, it was the first time in the probably, you know, eight or nine years since I started having these issues that nobody made me feel like a burden. Um, and I think that that made me like fall even, like a, a hundred times more in love with these communities um, because I got to just be normal. <laughs> like, I mean, not normal. I'm, I'm definitely kind of a weirdo, but in the way that <laughs> I choose to be and not because I have these health conditions I can't control. Um, people are more, well, it's not perfect. And I think it's still kind of a learning curve and not everybody is um, as considerate about it as I would like. There's, you know, some people have their own preferences where they would choose to, to make things less accessible. Um, overall, it's been a really positive experience. And I really um, think that that's something that this community does well. I think that marginalized people tend to be more understanding of other marginalizations, even if it's not one they've personally experienced. And, um, and I, 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 I love when I can see that going in all different directions, because I think we're all, we all have different life experiences. Um, I think that in other ways, I know that um, at least in my community, um, I tend to find that a lot of the polyamorous community here, uh, I live outside of, I live in the Philadelphia area, um, has a ton of disabled and chronically ill people. Um, you know, and, and f I know that's not the case everywhere, but here it really feels really wonderful to have that be a thing that, um, that when I host events and that I, I felt weird at first making the rule that no one could wear fragrances or perfumes to the events I host, which um, for obvious reasons, I can't host an event, I can't breathe at, um, mm -hmm. makes it very challenging to be in charge. Um, and also if it's at my house, I, like I will get very sick and I will stay sick if it smells in my house. Um, but then people kept coming up to me, people who have migraines or other health conditions where they were like, oh my God, I'm not getting sick at your events. Like I didn't even, some people didn't even realize that that was an issue for them. And so being able to feel like, um, getting the sense that like, Getting that feedback where I, I felt like it wasn't just advocating for myself anymore. It was like something that was actually helping other people, which makes a lot of sense because statistically like a third of the population has some kind of sensitivities, even if it's only to certain chemicals or certain fragrances. Um, I think most people, you know, get sick from the smell of Axe or whatnot. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think that's like human repellent, honestly. Um, but those are things I think it does really well, to be honest. Yeah, I think a lot of the time we, I don't want to make it sound like the polyamorous community is perfect or anything, because we're obviously not. There are jerks in every group, right? Mm -hmm. But as a whole, we do a better job than average at noticing when people who are among us 
need a minute or need a hand, right? Because we've all been there. Yeah. Right? Because we've all been there at some point. Yes. It's a it's a relationship style that makes all of us deal with our own discomfort sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so we notice when we're causing that in other people and take a second to go, oh, sorry, can I help? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, to a I slightly also- higher than average degree. Totally. And I, I don't think it's a, um, a coincidence that in queer or polyamorous communities, mental health has a lot more, less stigma. Like, I think that there, obviously, I'm sure that um, some people would disagree with that. I think it depends on who you're interacting with specifically. But as a whole, I know that I can be like, like my friends talk about their therapist constantly or that they're mm-hmm. going to therapy or, you know, like, oh, my therapist said this thing. And it's talked about in this way that's just super casual and normalized in a way that I've never seen in the mainstream culture. Um, I think in small pockets it is, like in maybe certain certain friend groups or whatever. Um, but as a whole, it's generally like there's a lot of stigma, and especially in certain communities or cultures. Um, and so I think that that encouragement and that openness around um, being someone who works on yourself, who who wants to to better your mental health, whether you have specific health conditions or you just want to get the kind of support you can get from therapy, um, and that kind of self awareness and other things like introspection that comes with it, I think also helps breed a lot of empathy and understanding toward other people. Um, and, you know, I, um, one of the things I love and I, uh, is that like, you know, when we do our welcome circle for glittergasm, we talk about um, reframing rejection and how saying no is really just taking care of yourself. Like, you know, sure, maybe somebody doesn't want to kiss you. Maybe that's the reason they're saying no, but there's like a thousand other reasons that have nothing to do with you. Maybe they have to pee or they ate garlic or they're just really nervous or some other random thing. Um, and so we, we try to reframe things and we teach people, um, if I remember correctly, I think it's from Reed Malko, um, who, who might've started this, but it's, um, it's another sex educator. Um, but this, when people say no, we say, thank you for taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's something that then these people have often, be- often become really good friends of mine and people I hang out with outside of these events um, or just you know community things or whatever. Um, and so when I'm sick and I have to cancel, and someone ends up being like, no, 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 thank you for taking care of yourself. And I'm just like, wow, that is so nice to hear. Like, it sounds silly because like I, the one who told them to say it in the first place, but like, then I hear it popping up in other places. Um, and it just, as somebody who has a lot of anxiety, who who hates canceling on things, who gets really frustrated that my body doesn't always cooperate with the things that I want to do. Um, it's just another way of tying things together to make people feel more accepted for who they are, I think. You know, and I think that's, um, it's something I've learned a lot from the people. Like it's, it's so great to see each other role, role modeling things. And, and you're right, it's not a perfect community. Every, every group has a bunch of assholes. Um, not everybody follow, like not everybody does these things. Um, I will say that the people that I tend to gravitate toward all do. Um, and that's probably why I see it as being this like great community because the people who I interact with frequently um, are wonderful. Um, but it's also really helped me personally, like reframe how I look at my chronic illness and my disability. And in a way that I don't know if I had stayed trying to work or if I hadn't become involved in these communities that I would be where I am with like my level of like being able to cope with honestly really challenging health issues um, that navigate that, like, that impact everything I do all day, every day. That's a really wonderful positive note. So I'm going to wrap us up here. Thank you so much for being with me and for talking with me about this. So 
That was talking with Rachel Rose about disability, accessibility, and polyamory. You can find her at hedonish.com. You can also find her on Twitter at hedonish, on Instagram at hedonish, Facebook also at hedonish. She's got great branding here, folks. Um, And... Uh, on the Hedonish site, you can schedule a free consultation or coaching. She's teaching a workshop on the 24th uh, through an organization called The Staying In with Two Ends about communicating your needs and disclosing chronic illness. So if that's applicable to you, uh, you can look them up online. The way they're doing the sign up is by subscribing to the Staying In's newsletter. And I'll include the link for that in the show notes, along with all of the different social media where you can find Rachel Rose. So that's all of her information. As always, you can find us at the blog at readyforpolyamory.com. And you can find all of our social media linked in the show notes as well. Um, You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash ready for polyamory. The Ko-Fi is ko-fi.com slash ready for polyamory. And uh, you can find us next week here with an interview with Jessica Fern, the author of Polysecure, talking about attachment theory and trauma with us. So... I'm excited that we've started season three. We've got 12 weeks of some pretty cool episodes coming up. So see you next week. Have a great one, guys.